you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode, of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com, kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Joining us from UCLA and uh, their School of Medicine, of course, infectious disease physician and clinical instructor of medicine, Dr. Paul Adamson. Dr. Adamson, so good to have you with us. Hey, Larry. Happy Wednesday. Very good Wednesday to you as well. Let's start first of all. you got a case like Mayor Garcetti, fully vaccinated, but test positive for COVID. What do people in, in that situation need to do? Boy, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about uh, Mayor Garcetti's uh, infection. I'm happy that he's fully vaccinated. Um, I think one thing that I can share here is that I unfortunately also got an infection after I was fully vaccinated. Um, but it, the good thing is that infections following um, vaccination tend to be much more mild um, and tend to resolve really quickly. So I hope that that was the case for myself. And I hope that was, that'll be the case for um, Mayor Garcetti. So I wish him all the best there. Um, you know, when people are infected after COVID-19, um, it's possible they can still, or sorry, when they're infected after getting vaccinated, they can still transmit it. So it's important they still take um, precautions that they would normally would um, following an infection, you know, staying away from others and, and isolating for um, a full amount of um, 10 days. Um, and so I hope that, you know, that the uh, recommendations are still the same. Um, but it is much more likely that he'll have a mild infection and, and resolve much more quickly. All right. Good to hear. I feel badly after we recorded the interview, uh, we stayed on the phone just, you know, talking personally uh, for a little bit. And I was making some recommendations for things for him to see in Glasgow. And he was talking about the fun time that he was, you know, going to have for a day or so uh, after the formal end of the conference. But um, that, of course, not to happen under these circumstances. Again, we'll have that interview recorded yesterday with Mayor Garzetti coming up in the next hour of Air Talk. Uh, the CDC yesterday coming out with it, its endorsement of the Pfizer vaccine for elementary age kids. That's 5 to 11. And we have a number of, of local entities like L.A. County, uh, even the L.A. Unified School District coming out with its plans to have vaccinations at select campuses, as well as a mobile vaccination center for LAUSD students, select Saturdays, where students will be able to get vaccinated. However, the district is not going to require that those elementary age students be vaccinated. Your thoughts, Dr. Adamson, on this effort to roll out the Pfizer vaccine, as well as uh, not mandating it for the younger students. 
Yeah, I'm, I, I'm so excited. I think this is a really exciting day for, um, you know, parents and um, kids everywhere. I think this is a, a really exciting opportunity to have um, a chance to go out and get um, a vaccine. And it's really exciting to see that um, the, you know, LA Unified School District and the Department of Public Health um, are kind of ready to go. Um, I know that they had received some vaccine doses, I think yesterday, and um, sounds like they're already um, out and vaccinating um, kids as early as this morning. So that's really exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the, you know, requiring it for five to 11 year olds, you know, I'm not sure if that's something that will change. Um, you know, this was just approved by the CDC um, or recommended by the CDC yesterday. So I don't know if that's something that will change kind of going forward, because I know it is mandated for the um, older kids. Yeah. And so some schools, you're, you know, you're going to have a mix of vaccinated and unvaccinated kids. Anything to keep in mind in that scenario? Yeah, you know, I think that's a it's a challenge when you have mixing of age groups where, you know, some might be eligible for the vaccine and might have already been vaccinated while others, um, you know, might have only been recently eligible to be vaccinated as of today. Um, so I think, you know, the overall goal is to get as many kids as vaccinated as soon as possible to really experience the, you know, full benefits of these vaccinations. Um, I think that schools will have to do a good job of making sure that kids have access to vaccines, that um, parents have their questions answered and people have, um, you know, decreasing any barriers to vaccination that might exist. Because um, I do think that, you know, this is going to be one more step in getting us back to a, a normal life by having um, school kids uh, vaccinated and, you know, decreasing transmission in the schools, decreasing school closures and interruptions to their learning. Um, so I think it's really important also for decreasing the spread in the community. So far, and this, these are national numbers, I assume that they're higher in California, but about half of kids 12 to 17, I guess we generally call them teenagers, are fully vaccinated in the U.S. compared with nearly 70 percent of Americans 18 and older. Pediatricians think that that skepticism that you're seeing, you know, parent, parents with their teens is, is probably going to be even more present when you deal with younger kids. Um, Dr. Adamson, you know, what what would you say to parents who are reluctant to have their kids vaccinated? Yeah, I, I, well, I think you bring up, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, I, I understand that there are concerns about the vaccines um, from parents. And, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, parents want just want what's best for their kid. And they're trying to make these, you know, uh, difficult choices. And um, there's a lot of things being covered in the news and the media. Um, but I would just reassure parents that, you know, the, the FDA and the CDC, their, you know, job, they were tasked with reviewing all the safety and efficacy data of these vaccines. Um, and they, you know, both bodies found that the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the risks. Um, so I think parents should be comforted in that. And I think the way I see it is that these vaccines um, are basically making COVID a vaccine preventable disease. And so I think of it as like, you know, as I would all these other vaccine preventable diseases that we give vaccines for things like, you know, measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox, um, I sort of put it in that same category. So I think it's, I recommend the vaccines um, and I understand parents might have questions and I think it's okay to have questions. And I would just encourage parents to reach out to their, you know, pediatricians offices, their family practice doctors or other health professional to make sure they're getting their questions answered.
Uh, two uh, physicians from UC San Francisco, uh, one who directs the Center for AIDS Research there, Dr. Monica Gandhi, and the other uh, who uh, directs COVID response in the emergency department at UCSF, Dr. Gene Noble, co-signed a letter to Governor Newsom as, as well as to state health officials uh, calling on the state to um, have an off-ramp to some of the uh, protections that they have in schools for COVID-19. And in the letter, they cite the high vaccination rates in California, and they talk about in the area where they are, in the Bay Area, that you've got 85 to 90 percent of at least one dose of vaccination in in those counties. And uh, the argument of the two physicians is that California kids have much greater in-school restrictions than most other states, making it more challenging for them. Um, and, And so the other thing they argue is without the promise of kids being able to unmask at schools once they're vaccinated, that it disincentivizes the parents having their kids get vaccinated. What do you think of the argument they make? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a tough spot. I mean, we've, I think kids have uh, really suffered a lot. I mean, we've all suffered a lot, but kids, especially with school interruptions and school closures and, you know, distance learning and all these things. So I think everyone wants desperately to get back to normal. Um, and I think that, you know, those two, uh, you know, Dr. Gandhi um, and and others, I think are, are really pushing for off-ramps because I think what they want is some kind of plan in place that we can at least look forward to um, in order to help get back to normal. Um, so I agree in the sense that we should have a, some sort of, you know, plan in place, um, you know, a goal that we can all work towards. And I think that that goal includes um, having very high vaccination rates um, among kids who are eligible for the vaccine. So I think at the end of the day, that's kind of what's going to be our main driver and our way to decrease community transmission to a point where, you know, we might be able to talk about having back, um, sorry, masks, um, uh, not mandated in schools. You know, some California counties uh, have much more uh, liberal masking requirements than Los Angeles County, uh, more permissive ones. Um, and we heard yesterday from uh, the county's director of public health, Dr. Ferrer, that four criteria will need to be met to do away with the requirement for masking at outdoor mega events and indoor public settings. That includes the county recording three straight weeks at or below a moderate level of coronavirus transmission. That's yellow, according to the CDC. Secondly, that daily COVID-19 hospitalizations remain at fewer than 600 for three straight weeks, that at least 80 percent of residents 12 and older are fully vaccinated, and that there are no reports of significantly circulating variants of concern that could threaten vaccine efficacy. Only when all four criteria are met would the masking requirements be done away with. Does that seem right to you? I mean, given what you're seeing in other counties. Yeah, you know, I think this uh, county um, uh, uh, criteria that they're using uh, actually aligns fairly well with a lot of the other, um, like the Bay Area counties and um, 
you know, as in terms of getting us back to these, you know, unmasked um, times, I think every time we get close to this, the, the conversation um, kind of heats up a little bit because we want to, you know, I think all of us want to get back uh, to some state of normalcy. Um, but I do think having specific criteria that are there can sort of help guide us um, in terms of making these changes. Um, you know, I think we're in terms of LA County specifically, I think we're fairly close in a few of them. Um, you know, we have about 80% of those 12 and over have had one dose, so 72% are fully vaccinated, so we're, we're close there. Um, the test positivity currently is less than 1%. Hospitalizations have been about 650. Um, our case, uh, our rolling seven-day um, uh, case rate is a little bit, uh, or is a lot higher than that, so I think it's going to take us a while to get there um, in that regard. But I do think having kind of strict criteria that are guided by data can help us um, make really good public health uh, recommendations. Don't some of the neighboring counties, though, have more permissive masking requirements and we're not seeing runaway COVID-19 cases there? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's true. I think there's probably a variety of reasons um, for that. Um, you know, I think that I think what I think what probably also plays into it, too, is the, you know, earlier this year, we sort of um, did away briefly with with masks and then we sort of went backwards. And I think people wanted at that time, myself included, were calling for more um, data driven responses um, back then that that, you know, could help guide us. And so I think that maybe we're making uh, trying to learn from those and trying to not go backwards once we kind of move forward. We're talking with Dr. Paul Adamson of UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. He's clinical instructor of medicine and infectious disease physician. If you have questions for him about COVID-19, again, I'd ask, please don't don't ask ones that are just too that are highly specific to just you, because that's not going to be uh, necessarily relevant to a larger number of listeners. If you think that your question as it pertains to you has, would have resonance for large numbers of people, then that's great. But I just want to make sure they're not overly specific. In that case, best to talk with your physician if you have a number of different variables that come into play with your question. Rochelle in Irvine asks, do any over-the-counter drugs affect uh, the safety or efficacy of the COVID vaccines? I'm on daily allergy medications like Nasacort spray, and I'm planning to get my Moderna booster. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I um no, I don't think there's any over-the-counter vaccine or sorry, over-the-counter medications that should interact with the vaccine. Um, you know, I think earlier uh, there was some uh, misinformation out there about taking things like Tylenol or ibuprofen, um, and that could blunt the response of the vaccine. And, and those, you know, turned out not to be true. So, um, you know, I wouldn't take them a medication unless you, you know, needed to, but um, I don't know, I'm not aware of any over-the-counter um, uh, medications that interact with the vaccine. All right. Let's see. We have uh, uh, Rochelle in Irvine uh, emailed us to ask, my husband and I were both vaccinated with Moderna. We're excited. We'll soon be able to vaccinate our seven-year-old. Since the data for Moderna seems to suggest a higher degree of effectiveness than Pfizer, would it be worth it to hold out until the Moderna kids vaccine is approved? I would just add an addendum. It's not clear when that's going to be because of now this greater FDA scrutiny over concerns about myocarditis uh, in rare cases with Moderna. 
Yeah, right. I think, I mean, I would agree with you, um, Larry, on that recommendation for um, Rochelle and her child. I, w- I would say that, you know, the best, and I, we've been saying this kind of throughout the pandemic, is I, I really think that the best vaccine is the one that's available to you. Um, all the vaccines are really um, uh, are really efficacious in terms of preventing uh, COVID-19. They're all safe. Um, so I would say that if uh, they have the opportunity to get the vaccine now, I would do it you know, now and not wait for one, because you're right, I don't know when that's going to come. Um, we hope it'll be soon, but but I don't know how soon. All right. Uh, and let's see, Louise in Venice says there seems to be an increasing amount of evidence the vaccine affects menstruation. How do we know about any potential long-term effects on girls just hitting puberty or a teenage boy getting myocarditis? Considering children at such low risk for serious complications from COVID, why risk the vaccine? The UK has determined it's not worth the risk. Why should it be mandated? Yeah, I think that's that's a good question. Um, you know, there there have been some reports that um, the vaccines were associated with uh, kind of it, it wasn't affecting menstruation um, in the sense that it it had any long term harms. It was sort of uh, alterating the um, the cycle, um, and so and that was very brief, like right around the time of vaccination, and then after that, uh, returned to normal. So. Um, I would say that there's no evidence of any long-term um, side effects from the vaccine with regard to, um, well, well, definitely with regard to uh, fertility um, in the future, but also with regard to uh, menstruation as well. So, so I think that you know the vaccines have not been associated with any long-term um, effects, and we have people who've you know received vaccines several months ago, almost a year ago, and we're not seeing any long-term um, side effects. And I think that you know, as we know from all other vaccines. The effects from vaccines that, you know, most of the effects are seen within the first month. And so anything that's beyond that is really, really, you know, quite rare and be, would be very unexpected from all that we know about vaccines. Uh, Dr. Adamson, one of the ongoing mysteries is why COVID-19 seems to hit men generally harder than women. The death rate among men is higher. And from the very beginning, we saw this, that that men on average were getting sicker uh, from uh, the SARS-CoV-2 um, virus. Why is that? Do we? What are some of the best theories for this? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Um, I you know we see this in, in a few other diseases as well. Um, things like tuberculosis um, and hepatitis C tend to affect uh, men uh, more commonly uh, than women. And you know I, I'm not sure we actually we have a great idea. I think there's some speculation of the, as to whether or not there's um, you know potentially hormonal differences that might um, play a response in terms of response um, in terms of like immune response to diseases. Um, uh, you know, I think with, with COVID-19, there's also the possibility that there's other factors at play, um, you know, like, um, in terms of exposures, in terms of vaccination rates, um, things like that, there might have some different, where we know there are some differences between, uh, men and women, and, and that could potentially lead to some of that as well. But I think it, right now it's a mystery. We're still learning, uh, a bit more about all right. Uh, in the uh, entire Bay Area, back in the CDC orange and red tiers for the spread of COVID, what what do you uh, suspect is at play? Is this is this in part weather driven? The recent heavy rains they had up there. What do you think? Boy, it's really really hard to know. I think everything with COVID nineteen is probably you know multifactorial. 
um, kind of related to all of the above is probably my, my guess. Um, you know, I think they've had some uh, changes in, um, you know, kids are going to school. They've had the, the rains, which might've driven more people inside. They still have, you know, mask requirements for most places, but I know there are some places that have um, decreased Mac, uh, mask uh, mandates. So, you know, I'm not sure if we're seeing some of those infections rise in that scenario, but I think uh, what's really important to see too is that the vaccines are really game changers in terms of, uh, you know, decoupling the relationship between infections and hospitalizations. You know, before, whenever we had these surges of infections, they were followed, you know, a few weeks later with these surges in hospitalizations that we saw sort of throughout the pandemic. But I think now that vaccination rates are so high, we're actually seeing that infections, you know, might go up a bit and that's obviously never the goal, but, but those are not necessarily followed with the same degree of increase in hospitalizations. So that's, that's the benefit we're seeing with high vaccination rates. Uh, we have Ann in Pasadena says, I've had two shots of Moderna, but I'm confused about boosters. Are boosters a lesser dose of the same shot or, or the same dose? Uh, and what the CDC has recommended for people in your circumstance is uh, the booster dose of Moderna. And, and describe what the reason for that half dose uh, of the Moderna booster is, as opposed to giving everybody a, a third full dose as a booster. Right. So there's a, a few differences there. I think, you know, with, with Johnson and Johnson and Pfizer, it's the, uh, you know, it's the full vaccine dose as the, the booster. And then with Moderna, they studied a, a half dose um, for the booster. And so you're right that uh, for a booster dose of Moderna, it's a half dose, you know, and, and I think they just looked at different doses and, um, you know, wanted to evaluate the immune responses to those and the immune response for Moderna that had a half dose was, uh, you know, pretty robust in terms of, increasing antibody responses. And so um, ultimately that was what was recommended for um, uh, the dose there. And I, I wonder too, if the concern was with a third full dose of Moderna as the booster, because it it can lay you low for a couple of days um, that they were hoping to mitigate some of those side effects. Right, right. And I think that that's, you know, when we first started with the vaccines, that was also what we studied. You know, there's different doses and with higher doses, we know we can get, you know, slightly higher immune responses, but those might come at the, you know, cost of uh, more side effects like, you know, pain at the injection site, fevers, chills, muscle aches, things like that. And so you want to try to limit those while also having, you know, a, a good uh, set of immune responses. Let's talk with Monica in Beverly Hills. You're on air talk with UCLA's Dr. Paul Adamson. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I live with someone who's immunocompromised, and I was wondering, living in an apartment, um, what's the latest data on surface transmission, like when you share laundry facilities, trash receptacles, front door, you know, gates, that kind of thing, um, even shoes from outside? I wonder, how much do I need to be disinfecting things? Yeah, Monica, that, that's, a, that's a great question, and uh, thank you for that. I think, you know, what we've learned throughout this pandemic is that, um, this particular virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, you know, it's a respiratory virus, but it's really not spread in the same way that other respiratory viruses are in the sense that um, contacts and surfaces really don't drive transmission the way that we initially thought that they might. Um, so I, I know in the beginning, we were all kind of cleaning off surfaces and um, things like that, but we found that that's actually not how the virus is transmitted. It's mostly 
you know, respiratory droplets, meaning things that come out of people's mouth and kind of fall within a, a few feet. Um, and it probably doesn't last on surfaces for very long um, in a way that contributes to transmission. And I think the other way that it transmits is, um, is airborne. And so, you know, that's a smaller percentage of transmission, but it is an important one. And so I think, you know, making sure that, you know, people are wearing masks when they're inside, especially like really tight closed areas. So if you're sharing a, a laundry room, for example, and that's a, you know, small laundry room, you want to make sure people have door, you know, doors or windows open to increase um, uh, air exchange. Um, but I don't think that cleaning off, you know, shoes and surfaces is something that um, we would have to, uh, you know, do much more than we would normally do for, for regular things. Cause there's other, obviously other viruses and bacteria that can be spread that way, but, but COVID specifically, not as much as we initially thought. Monica, thanks very much. We appreciate your call. Uh, let's see. We have another question from Bill in Van Nuys. Um, Please comment on the recent study published by Rockefeller University uh, showing an increase in memory B cells after a COVID infection compared to a vaccination. These cells provide long-term natural immunity. How close are we to treating an infection the same as a vaccine? Wow. Uh, great, great question there, uh, uh, Bill. Uh, yeah. So basically what, what, what Bill's question is getting at. So our immune system has T cells and B cells, and they're really critical parts of our immune response that help us fight off infections. T cells roam around our bodies. They kill infected cells. B cells are cells that work to kind of coordinate the production of antibodies. And I know we've, I think we've discussed here before that, um, you know, after a stimulation of your immune system, it, there is a waning of immunity, which is a normal response, but a subset of those cells kind of lives on in our body for a long time as memory T and B cells. And they help us sort of in the future fight off infections that we see. Um, and, and the study bills referring to is one that was looking at, um, you know, uh, antibody production of memory B cells that were, um, uh, Look at antibody production after vaccination versus antibody production after somebody had a natural or sorry, an infection with COVID-19. They found that actually what they found was that they people who were vaccinated produced more antibodies and more reliably produced antibodies following vaccination compared to those who had an infection. But, you know, perhaps the range of antibodies was a, a bit broader um, following an infection. And so the authors concluded that you know, there were reliable amounts of antibodies following vaccination. And that in my mind, and what the art authors argue as well, is that that actually kind of uh, argues for vaccination following an infection. So you have broad antibodies that are produced after an infection. And if you give somebody a vaccination after that, you actually have a, a much higher level of antibody that's produced after that. Um, and that can go on to, to protect you as well. Um, so I think that, you know, to, but to Bill's other point, I think, you know, I think we're learning a lot more about immunity after natural or sorry, infections, I should say. Um, and so I think we do need to learn more about that. Um, and I think I would also just kind of reiterate that getting an infection was never a recommended strategy for, for getting well, immunity because we have, you know, safe vaccines that are effective. Um, and so I would recommend getting a vaccine rather than getting an infection. Well, and and in fact, we, you know, I don't, I don't know what the numbers are. We've certainly had a number of listeners who've had COVID multiple times. Um, who, despite having it the first time, were susceptible to getting it a second. We, we even had one listener, I recall, had it three times. Um, so, 
I would think the argument would be even if you had it once and that confers some degree of immunity that you would want to maximize it with a vaccine on top of that um, to get as much protection as you can. Because we, we know that it's it's uh, there are many, many cases of people who've had COVID multiple times. Right. I think that's exactly right. I think the you know, what we know is that you are, there is a degree of protection for at least a short amount of time. But what we don't know is that it seems to vary from person to person. So some people might have immunity after an infection for a long period of time. Some people might have immunity for a short period of time. And it's really hard to know, you know, how that's going to vary from person to person. And there's no test to tell you that. And so I think you're right in the sense that I, I, my practice has been to recommend people get vaccines following vaccinations, because that'll be associated with a really, really high immune response, even higher than people who just got a vaccine. So I still recommend that, but you know, I do acknowledge that we, you know, we do need to learn more about these infections, but um, I just think the variability makes it really hard to predict on an individual basis. Yeah. I mean, if, if you gave everybody a full um, immune system workup, looking at, you know, what was looked at in this Rockefeller study, would that give you a clear enough idea of what the susceptibility would be to future COVID? Uh, that, that's a really interesting question. It's it's so hard to answer because, you know, what this Rockefeller study did, and there's been a number of studies very similar to this Rockefeller one um, that have looked at immune responses. And, you know, what the studies are doing is they're actually looking at immune responses like in a in a cell dish, right? So they're not looking at them in a person. And so what you know, that's important. And we learn a lot from that for sure. But w- what you also want to know is, are you, in, are you, you know, protected against infection, like within a person, within a living body, within a, you know, an, a complex immune system. And th- those are the questions that are a little harder to get at. Uh, we do know that there is protection associated with, you know, people who had prior infections, but we do know people who had prior infections who then went on to get vaccinated are even less likely to get uh, an infection in the future. So we know that the immune system is like, really robust in, in those settings. Um, so that's why I recommend for all my patients who've had prior infections to get uh, an, uh, at least at least one dose, if not a full series of um, vaccines. Dr. Adamson, always a pleasure to talk with you, sir. Thank you so much for being with us. Our regards to all of your colleagues at UCLA as well. We really appreciate your being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.